0: Hi, I'm Maria, and I'm Zeynep, and welcome to episode 65 of Raw Talk. Across Canada and all around the world, thousands of scientists work in labs on a variety of complex topics, many of which we've delved into on previous episodes of Raw Talk. Each of these questions being asked by this community, from understanding
1: the role of a particular protein, to developing new imaging techniques to diagnose cancer, they all have a tremendous impact on Canadians and have fundamentally shaped our day-to-day
0: lives. But how is the value of each project determined when we have limited resources? How do we decide what science gets funded and published, and what gets left on the laboratory floor?
1: On today's episode, we talk about the life cycle of research, from collecting support and funds for research ideas, to the review process of research results and its publication, to ensuring public outreach and engagement, all of which ultimately lead
0: to further investing in research and beginning the cycle again to add to discoveries. But where does the money for science come from? There are organizations and charities in Canada that offer funding, but the simple answer is from you. Scientists compete in a series of granting programs, which in Canada are mostly organized by the federal government in Ottawa. Ultimately, the money for science comes from the Canadian taxpayer. The Canadian Institutes for Health Research, or CIHR, is one
1: of the agencies of the Tri-Council created by the government and tasked with funding health research in Canada. There are also the Natural Science and Engineering Research Council, or NSERC,
0: and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, or SSHRC. Grant proposals are sent to expert panels in these organizations who then decide which projects receive funding from a set budget determined by the government. These agencies are also involved in awarding competitive scholarships to graduate students and incentivizing early career scientists to work in Canada through a variety of programs. So far, so good, but unfortunately, science and science funding has become a bit
1: of a neglected topic in Canadian politics. Funding has stagnated and we are far behind
0: our peer countries. During the last election in 2015, however, the Liberals' platform spoke broadly of the importance of science and evidence-based decision-making. And as one of his first acts as Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau appointed a Minister of Science. Grace had the opportunity to speak with Dr. David Naylor,
1: former president of the University of Toronto and chair of the recent Fundamental Science Review Panel, which was created in 2016 at the direction of Minister of Science Kirsty Duncan. Dr. Naylor told us about the panel and their mandate.
2: The minister made it pretty clear early on she was concerned about funding, had picked up the message that the Harper government had focused on applied research had not provided a lot of funding in general, but particularly earmarked it towards applications and innovation. So from early on in her term as minister, Dr. Duncan emphasized the need to think about how to support independent fundamental science. The concept of a panel uh, rolled out. She was in touch with me about chairing it, and we worked together on the composition of the panel, tried to make sure we had reasonable gender balance, a mix of research-intensive and regional research universities, and, uh, of course, the disciplinary bounce as best we could. I don't think we hit a perfect disciplinary bounce. We had three people with a physics interest, and we were light on the humanities, but it was certainly broader than many panels have been that have looked at things in the, the research space, so pretty wide-angle commitment on the part of the panel.
0: The FSR published their report in early 2017, but suggested improvements in the budget were not implemented until the following year. We asked Dr. Naylor about some of the major findings of this report.
2: The main findings have been rehearsed many times. The minister's diagnosis was one that reflected the community's perspective. It was a fabulous panel, amazing experience to work with them, but the community was also very engaged with the panel process and, you know, affirmed exactly what they'd been saying to the minister, namely, we had a shortfall in funding. The peak had been reached many years earlier, really early in the Kretchen period of the so-called innovation agenda science funding per capita had fallen and we were seeing a squeeze on the next generation which of course badly affects equity, diversity and inclusion because of the shift in the composition of the research workforce uh, with uh, a much more diverse pool of individuals undertaking graduate studies and entering the junior ranks of the professoriate, so bad news for diversity with the squeeze on funding. More generally, you know, we had an imbalance in terms of applied versus fundamental research that had emerged. And there were across the board matters of concern. The instability of the budget of the Canada Foundation for Innovation meant that infrastructure was supported on a somewhat unpredictable and spiky basis. The graduate student and postdoctoral suite of supports had not been refreshed or reviewed for many years. Big concern with the growth in the pool. Some of the career awards had been pulled back that the granting councils offered, which meant there was more reliance on the Canada Research Chairs. Well, you know, they were introduced in 2000. It had no further renewal of funding. In fact, in the Harper era, because logistics meant that some number of them went unfilled, instead of managing the logistics of the approval and application process, which, you know, involves basic queuing theory and some thought, the Harper government took that as a chance to claw back 350 of the chairs. So there were missing chairs even against the 2,000 that were initially planned in terms of the budgeting. A side effect of leaving spots unfilled, quite a number of them. So there was, everywhere we looked, signs of a certain amount of neglect, a certain amount of lack of investment. And we heard that in great detail from the research community, which was enormously engaged with our process in 2016-17. And, of course, the findings reflected all of that and a series of recommendations to begin to bring us back into play to restore a competitive footing for Canadian independent extramural research. Finally, I would say is we were at considerable pains to emphasize it was about the entirety of the research realm. This wasn't focused on STEM. We we invoked the French, uh, Les Sciences Humaines, to highlight that the humanities were very much in play here, that we were talking about scholarship in its broadest sense, and we were also concerned with what we saw as a life cycle approach. So we, we were thinking about from the graduate students at the masters and doctoral level right through to senior scholars. What suite of initiatives including administrative and governance changes, would put Canadian science on a footing to improve its prospects for you know, the next decade or next generation. I think the financial recommendations were actually prudent and modest. They were not aggressive. They were really benchmarked very carefully against early high-water marks. And so you know, putting it all together, I think it was a blueprint to get us back on the road to being highly competitive. And unfortunately, though I think tremendous progress has been made, The government really has fallen short in both the speed and the final point of investment so that we, I think, are recovering, but we still need a serious infusion of resources to get fully competitive in the years ahead.
1: As mentioned, in recent years, there's been more emphasis on applied science, sometimes called translational science in a health setting. Applied science clearly targets a problem facing humans and will be used with clear applications to benefit humans.
0: When thinking about how funding is allocated, Stefania sat down to speak with Dr. Alan Bernstein, the president of CIFAR and former president of CIHR from 2000 to 2007. He explained that thinking about potential impacts on human health is a good way to build engagement and interest in scientists' work.
3: In a democracy, at least, government represents people. People pay for our science. So it's not surprising that people care about how their money is spent. And so what do people care about? Well, for sure, people care about diseases, right? Everyone cares about their health, so they want cancer to be solved. Even more specifically, they want the cancer that affects them the closest, whether it's themselves or a loved one, they want that one to be solved tomorrow. Yes. Right. We're all getting older, so they want dementias to be solved and Alzheimer's and, you know, neurological disorders to be solved, mental illness, heart disease. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that reflects an interest of the public in health and an understanding that you need research to solve those problems. If we are going to argue for science with our politicians and with Canadians, we need to relate it to them and to the issues that they face. And it's not an argument to a fundamental research versus applied. It's an argument about the importance of research and knowledge to create new jobs. So there needs to be an interlocker between the public and the scientific community, which is, I think, in a sense, what people who run these agencies, and certainly what what I did. Their role is to, in part, explain to Parliamentarians representing the public that sometimes the shortest way home is not a straight line, and that's where fundamental research comes in. To me, the question is: Is it interesting research? Yeah. And will it be research that eventually that will have impact? Yes. Impact on science, impact on people. That to me is the right question. And it's a funny thing about science, but the best science has impact on science, and on people. The. Questions on a grant application that ask that question, I don't think should be used to decide whether you get funding or not, unless it's an RFA, unless it's a strategic initiative. To me, the main purpose of that question is to force the person who's writing the grant to think about that question. So again, I'll go back to, this is going back a long time. When I wrote my postdoc application to work on chicken tumor viruses, avian tumor viruses, I was asked that question. What is the relevance to human cancer? So the honest answer is, I don't know. (laughs) That's true. Right? Who cares about chicken tumor viruses and humans, right? On the other hand, it made me think about exactly this question. By and large, human cancers are not caused by retroviruses, certainly not by avian retroviruses. On the other hand, the mechanisms by which these viruses cause cancer can't be completely different if you think about it in hindsight, at least, then how humans get cancer? How many ways can you get cancer? So, so viruses. Again, I have the benefit of hindsight. What these viruses do is capture human genes, and they're mutated, and they're a hook to getting into how human cancers. So, what I wrote fifty years ago in my postdoc application was that the mechanisms by which these avian viruses cause cancer in chickens. Is probably going to be shared with how human cancers arise. If not, not the actual virus themselves, but the underlying biomedical mechanism. That turned out to be exactly right. It's not that I'm brilliant but, at all, but it's just obvious when you think about it. So it did, it did force me to think about it. I never quite believed what I wrote, to be honest, but it forced me to think about it. And I think we all should have to think about how we're spending public money.
1: Dr. Naylor worries that Canada is still lacking in science culture and observes that in the U.S., the National Institutes of Health have been very successful in winning broad support from the U.S. public and lawmakers, with per capita funding three times greater than its counterpart, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research.
2: It comes back to science culture and, you know, the striking example of the U.S., Now, in the case of the U.S., I would emphasize that NSF, the National Science Foundation, has a per capita funding rate that isn't much different than NSERC. So the the bias is towards medical research. And somehow, through many, many decades of advocacy and education, The concept has been baked into the minds of lawmakers that medical research is a good thing and that investing in medical research is part of the lifeblood of the US innovation economy and part of what will matter to the voter in a smaller town or a big city or a rural constituency. For reasons I still don't fully comprehend, that mindset has not permeated here.
0: In response to the FSR, funding for signs in Canada was recently increased in 2018 but still remains low compared to other G7 countries. Out of an approximate
1: $1 billion budget for the 2017-2018 fiscal year, CIHR invested a little over $550 million into investigator-initiated
0: project and foundation grants. In fall 2017, a total of 3,415 applications were submitted to CIHR, and only 512 of those applications were funded, with a total investment of approximately $372 million. With such
1: tight competition, which ideas and which scientists will receive that funding? What makes an application or project great? Dr. Bernstein shared what he looks for.
3: I think you bet on two things. The number one thing, and probably the number two thing, is you bet on people. Yeah. Good people, great people, by definition, do great things. So I really focus on the caliber of the individuals who want to do a particular project. Because in the end of the day, it's... That's the most important thing. I think secondarily, you pay some attention to, is this a really interesting question? And it may not be obvious, especially if it's outside your own area, it's an interesting question, but if a really smart person, a really good scientist said, I would like to work on X, then even if my initial reaction, I'll personalize it, is, why would he want to do that? Yeah. On the other hand, Gee, I really have a lot of respect for that individual. So then I'll do a little bit of thinking and reading about it, and go, oh, now I get it. it. It comes down to, again, by definition, good people do interesting things, and so you bet on good people. Even when it's not obvious to you at the time that it's a, gonna be an important question. I don't like either or decisions. And so when you're running an organization like CIHR, you need a a fundamental core of researchers doing a lot of work a lot of great research so that's you know the open competition as it's called right at chr i also think the right kind of strategic initiatives that are addressing more immediate or obvious issues should also be part of the portfolio sort of a diversified portfolio A lot of people in the research community will argue when success rates are so low that money should not be used to fund strategic things. On the other hand, a well-written RFA, Request for Applications in the Strategic Areas, allows for a lot of really, really good fundamental research. And the best way to convince politicians to give CHR more money is not to frame it as we're only gonna do fundamental research, we're not gonna do anything that's relevant to Canadians, right, is a big mistake. And so we tried to write the, the strategic initiatives, I believe, and from the institutes, in a way that was broad enough that could encompass a lot of great fundamental research and tackle more immediate issues facing Canadians.
0: What are some more reasons for why the success rates in achieving funding are so low?
3: One reason that the success rates in the open competition is so low or too low actually got nothing to do really with government funding of CHR. It has to do with the growth in the research community at universities. It's really gone through a huge expansion driven by other things, driven by CFI, driven by Canada Research Chairs, driven by indirect costs, the growth of our universities from philanthropy, blah, blah, blah. So it means that the denominator has gotten bigger.
1: Competition in science isn't only at the level of applying for funding, but also once you've carried out your study and are trying to share it with the world. There are many scientific
0: journals that you can publish in, but with varying degrees of reach, rigor, and impact. Two of the most prestigious, highly cited, and shared journals that cut across fields are science and nature. Stefania spoke to Dr. Orly Bacall, a senior editor at Nature Genetics, to hear more about how they choose which articles to accept for publication and what they think will have a strong impact. Assessment of manuscripts are all subjective, right? Your assessment of the advance
4: of a work is always subjective and we are here as editors, of really as part of our community, to help and support our communities in different ways. And one of that is through the peer review and publication of manuscripts. And the things that we work for, you've mentioned a few of them, in assessing manuscripts is the novelty and the advance and the contribution to the field. But all of this fits within the spectrum of what, as editors, we're looking for within our journal and how we're looking to represent our field within our journal. And so we do this on a broader scale. We're looking, while well, we read each manuscript and we make our assessment of each manuscript as a journal or as a team of journals, as we have across nature journals, we have very regular assessments where we do, just like we're doing here with the strategic planning meeting, we do our own strategic assessment and we keep track of our fields and We keep track of what work is going on and the new trends and really exciting new areas are developing. And this is the part I love the most about my job is the fact that we get to keep track of all this. And we discuss within a big team at Nature. I work with a team of 18 editors in the biological sciences team and we meet together and we discuss what are the most important areas and we each represent our fields and we have discussions about how we represent them, what areas we want to represent and what are standards within each area that we should be looking for and write our own strategic review about how we're gonna do that. And all of that, which we do a couple of times a year and we update as, as we go along as well, that it really is the major thing which informs how we assess manuscripts. So each manuscript that we see We are reading it to understand the manuscript and what was done and the level of advance. But as an editor, we are fitting that into the context of what we're looking for to represent as a journal. So as an editor, when we're doing our regular assessments, if we say the word impact, what we're really looking at is not citations, but we're looking at what do we as an editor think is the impact of this work. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely something that I talk about a lot. So the impact of the work I will usually be talking about, is this study going to really change something in my field? And change something in my field, it might be something like a resource. I mentioned the UK Biobank is just transforming human genetics research as we know it. And so that is one of the most impactful papers that I've published in the past couple years. And that's because it does transform how we do human genetics, right? Right. And because it provides Mm -hmm. an invaluable resource. And so it might provide a resource or it might have findings or analysis that shifts the way the field is done or just questions some theories and makes people reevaluate it. I could consider that as very impactful because it's something that we widely discuss in the field and makes people reevaluate some of the theories. Impact I often talk about if it's something I'm asking, how is this work going to be used? So it's impactful if it's something that lots of people are going to be reading and it's going to inspire. It might be a very initial result right now, but it's going to inspire a lot of people to do follow-up work. Mm-hmm. So all you know, there are many different ways to be impactful. But we're really looking at impactful as something that people are going to read, people are going to talk about. It's going to have an influence within this field or other fields. right? Another good way to be impactful is because... Maybe, you know, within my field of genetics, it it might be something that's quite commonly known, but it's really translating this to the next step. And we've been talking a lot here about genomic medicine and translation. So impactful is translating things into the clinic. And so there are very different ways when we're talking about impactful and clinical translation of genomics. There are many different ways to look at that. So every manuscript has very different types of questions that we will look at to try to talk about that.
1: Dr. Bacall also discussed the consultation system in place at nature to try to find the right journal to fit an author's manuscript. I think the most important advice I give to
4: authors when I talk to them is to keep in mind that there are many journals out there. And all of the journals are doing the job of representing the field as the way they feel is appropriate for their journal or as their set of journals. And understand that there is a fit for everyone and a place for everyone. And that's something that at Nature Journals we also try to help out our authors as a service even more because we have a whole set of journals across the nature family. I try, and all all the editors at the company try to find a best home for any manuscript that's submitted to us. And we do believe we have a good home for any manuscript. And so the way we do that is, you know, when I talk to authors out some interesting work and they submit this. If it's not a good fit for me, I talk to my team and We'll also talk to editors across our office, across many other journals that are relevant, and ask who's interested in the manuscript. And I think that's been one of the most interesting process. We've developed this, what we call, consultation system over the last five years to really expand it and make it a lot more available and accessible for all of us. And I think that's been the most interesting experience, because as a group of journals at Nature, we're really able to work very closely together to understand all different aspects of a field and how different journals can represent different areas of a field really well. And within that for a manuscript that is a very good technically but may have a different angle, we can find you know different journals will want to represent that in different ways and we can offer authors different options of so different journals to go to.
0: An important part of science is replication, making sure previous findings are repeated and validated. Just as important are negative results, where no effects or correlations are found. Although these studies may sometimes be perceived as less exciting, they're a vital part of the scientific process and something journals are placing greater emphasis on.
4: Negative results is, I mean, that's really in just how you define a negative result. Mm -hmm. negative result can be a positive result if you spin it, right? Finding a lack of association can be incredibly poignant finding lack of support for a theory that was assumed to be true can be incredibly important, mm-hmm. right? So it's really in how you decide and frame it. I look for that just as much as any other kind of paper, and I absolutely have published some great ones like that. And I think we do, we, we do look for that just as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may not see it, it may be depending on how it's framed, So I think that is there's incredible value in that of publishing negative results. I think all you I know, mean, as I said, all journals have their own approach and they're really looking for how to represent their fields in the best way at their journal. So I think everyone has a slightly different approach. I don't think it's as clear cut as some might think as we do where we don't publish negative results. Mm-hmm. It's really we look for the we look for the best in the paper. We look for what it contributes to our field. So I I just don't see that kind of dichotomy. Mm-hmm. But what I think a little separate from a negative result is the idea of replication and following on papers yes. as well. So there is a lot of interest in just pure replication studies from a manuscript and how we represent and publish those. And those can be incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And very often they can contribute a lot, but they're not enough to warrant a publication in the same level of journal. Or in the same journal, and it's difficult for that journal to find enough space. And we've definitely had that, that issue of we get a lot of replication studies that are not actually questioning or changing the publication, and we can't give it a full publication itself, uh, but we see a lot of value in collecting those in some way. And I think that's something the field is still working with, and, and across our journals we still discuss for how to best do that. I think things like preprint servers have really been a huge help having these more available in biology, and posting preprints can be great. We also have uh, comments fields on all of our articles, so authors can post the preprint, add comments, and link directly to our papers but we definitely do look for more ways that we could aggregate that across and link it more directly to the original publication, which is, I think would be a, a good direction for publishing.
1: We've talked about how science is funded and how it's published, but despite all the competition involved, science can also be incredibly collaborative. CIFAR is the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, a global organization that brings together top researchers from around the world to think about important questions that face science and humanity. Unlike CIHR, CIFAR is not a funding source, but a builder of community and ideas. Dr. Bernstein, their president, told us more.
3: So CIFAR is a fabulous organization, it's Canadian-based, global organization, research organization, where we build communities. We bring together some of the top researchers from around the world, including Canada, of course, uh, around a question of importance to science and to humanity. We convene these, this community, we, they meet you know, a couple times a year for five years renewable, and what we want is ultimately and ideally a whole new way of thinking about a really important question, a transformative way of thinking about it. So we're not primarily a funder of research at all, we're, we're a builder of, of global communities. We're not bounded by geography, we're not bounded by discipline, we're not bounded by questions. So we have problems in in the social sciences. We have problems in the biological sciences, life and life and health. We have programs in quantum materials, quantum information science, astrophysics, another n- new program in geophysics. And we invite anybody in the world to come forward with an idea for a new CIFAR program. And what we require is that it be a question of importance to humanity and to science, that it um, be of the nature that it's a great CFAR program. So if you want to identify all the genes mutated in autism, it's the kind of work that Steve Sher does, for example, it's a great project, but it's not a CFAR question. That can be funded by CIHR. And I'm not saying one's better than the other. It's just We have a different niche in the ecosystem of research. We're interested in, in bigger questions, more broader questions. So just to give you a good example of one, brain, mind, and consciousness. What is the relationship between our brain and our mind? We can't write a CHR grant to, to solve that problem. Yeah. That program, led out of Western Ontario, has got about 20 to 25 people in it, from philosophers to molecular geneticists to cognitive psychologists to psychiatrists, etc., who are meeting to discuss that question. So they don't meet to do experiments. They meet to discuss, to wrestle with such a huge question and so we invite proposals in any area. We don't say it's gotta be in the brain, it's gotta be in geophysics, or it's gotta be in disease, it can mean anything. We could have a global call that's, that's targeted, we've talked about it actually, we might one day. So, you know, you, we could have a global call on the environment, uh, or whatever, right? So, but so far they've been open calls. And so it's gotta be a CIFAR type program, great leadership, Global, We don't require that things be interdisciplinary. On the other hand, we believe that our contribution to the research ecosystem is to bring together people who normally would not get together, which then means both international and interdisciplinary.
0: The nature of science is continuously evolving. Technology has reshaped how we act, think, and ultimately how we conduct science today these changes have propelled interdisciplinary and intercontinental collaboration, creating a community of researchers across the globe working to advance science together.
3: We are much more collaborative and it's much more bigger international science today than ever before.
0: More and more,
4: I'm appreciative of what it takes to do the type of genomic science that we see today. It requires a level of international collaborations. I think that's, I mean, that's been true for one to two decades, but increasingly it's becoming even more true. And that's something when I was a graduate student was not as much the case. I think there there are differences in cultures, and that's something um, that's really important when we work together as scientists. But there's always the focus on the scientific method and the results, and I think that crosses borders. We all have good things that we can learn from each other. So if we want to just compare one thing currently in genomics between the UK and the US and Canada too, and it's something we've been talking about at this meeting, uh, would be establishing resources that are invaluable for our field and for the progress of genomic medicine. And we've been talking about the need for population cohorts, establishing population cohorts and Ensuring that these have genetic information and, and now whole genome sequencing is the hope. And we've talked about the UK Biobank, which has really become the primary model, the leading effort in this, and has become an, you know, the most invaluable resource that has really shifted all of human genetics in the past couple of years. I mean, it can't be underestimated. Just the value that having, establishing the UK biobank and providing the open, fully open access to all researchers has for human genetics and human health. And the idea is to then model that in other countries. So the US has an effort with all of us, and other countries are establishing biobanks too, but are further behind. And what we've been talking about today is a lot of people who are trying here in Canada and through the McLaughlin Center to hopefully establish more of these population cohorts in Canada, which I think is an incredibly laudable effort.
1: In research, we are often faced with the dilemma of when to actually publish our work. Should we focus on publication quantity and divide our projects into smaller components or package everything together in a potentially more impactful paper? We asked Dr. Bacall to give us an editor's point of view. Figuring out what's the right fit for that work and that
4: project and the right way to present and package that work. And it's really great to involve an editor, um, any editors that you know, regardless of whether you plan to submit to their journal or not, because editors can have great ideas and just what's the right way to package a set of studies and where to draw the line. You know, I get these questions all the time, not necessarily about submitting a manuscript, but. When I go to visit a lab and spend, say, a whole day with a the lab, they want to know, you know, here's all these amazing stuff going on and how do I decide where to stop or where to break things up or what's a good way to do it. And editors have, you know, they, they're used to seeing this. They all have other things to weigh in. You know, maybe you can package it this way or, you know, maybe that's really enough now. You know, you can, <laughs> if you want, you can submit it that way. You don't have to go on for two more years. But at the end of the day, it's your it's your project. and yes. You and your advisor need to be working together to figure out how you, you know, what you want to achieve, what are your goals as a student, what you need to accomplish. And there's, there's really no right or wrong answer.
0: While formal review of research studies must be extensive to maintain a certain level of quality, bias within this process can compromise what serves as the foundation of science, objectivity. Bias can come in many forms, whether it be where articles come from, gender, expertise, scientific domain, or conflict of interest, to name a few. We asked Dr. Bacall how editors limit bias during their review of manuscripts. This is something we care a lot about, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, We
4: want to, I mean, we do represent the best research from anywhere, uh, from anyone. Uh, And we are, well, we're not fully blinded, right? We're not blinded to who the authors are. We have looked at models where, there are double blinded. So I have I've read manuscripts where, say, the author list is removed and commented on them. We've all, as editors, we've all done this in certain times and done trials, and how that affects our editorial decision or how that affects the review process. Uh, and we see that doesn't really affect us as editors. We really only care about the you know publishing the best in science as we should. We also uh, offer at Nature journals. We offer what's called double blind peer review. So authors can uh, select during the submission process to have a blinded review such that the author inf- author list and author information is removed from the manuscript. And so it is, the editors will still see the author information, but the referees will not. Okay. And we've done this now for several years at Na- across nature journals. It's available to anyone who submits. And uh, from those who opt into that and their manuscript is set to review, we see really no effect both on whether the manuscript is sent to review at that journal or what the final decision is. So we don't see any actual impact on it, and as quite rightly so, because we don't believe that it does have any impact. What we do look at also is the submission rates, which you alluded to, the submission rates and where we get the best research and how well it's presented. Uh, So we do try to do more outreach in areas that we feel are underrepresented that may not know to submit to our journals or not know quite the process or not feel as open doors mm-hmm. to that or may not have easy access to editors. So that's something we care a lot about and we will, if we if we realize there's really good work going on in an area or a lab that is just not submitting to top journals, we will go talk to them and do more outreach and visit with their labs and maybe give seminars about how to work on their papers and how to prepare a paper for submission and how to talk to an editor and all these things I'm talking about with you and try to help them more through the process. That's something we all try to do.
1: When discussing publishing, it is vital to consider the issue of accessibility. That is how easily articles can be read by both researchers and the general public. Some articles and journals are open access, meaning that they are free to everyone without barriers. Unfortunately, the majority are not. With
5: regards to communication, there has been some judgment with regards to the journals that basically they're not free access so that a lot of this science, as we said, we have to get more funds and a lot of it is funded from taxpayer money, but then those same people have to pay again to access the published results. How do, how do you respond personally on that type of judgment on the journals? How do you respond to that kind of criticism?
4: Yeah, so I think um, I think these are very exciting discussions that we've been having and they've evolved uh, over the, you know, over the last decade or so. They've evolved a lot. And I remember uh, very well when when PLOS first started, and uh, they launched an incredible model for open access journals, and has been very successful. And very exciting to to follow. And uh, since then, many other journals have launched uh, and shown the ability to have these models. Um, but as as you note, there's still the question of what is a viable business model, and that's something that all publishers really do struggle and are continuing to struggle to figure out what is a business, a successful business model to allow this to happen. And I don't think any, I've never seen anyone who actually questions the idea between making the research finding and the data sets and the access fully open and available, and that's something that we all would like to see. Mm-hmm. Something at Nature Journals, we very much support having a uh, the openness of the, the methods and the data sets and the analysis behind manuscripts. But the the final publication, there still needs to be some business model for this. So that's something all of us do work with. Uh, you know what, I think one of the things that we do offer at Nature, as you said, we do have a number of open access journals. Mm-hmm. And so we've increased, we've increased those quite a bit over the last few years. Uh, to give authors more and more options for publishing in our journals within fully open
0: access journals. Dr. Bacall continues, explaining her support of preprints, which are full drafts of research articles made available online to the public before formal peer review and publishing in a journal. We also uh, support preprints more and more. Uh, Nature
4: has always supported preprints for over a few decades, starting... Back when it was mostly only in physics. And I come from an academic family uh, with two parents in astronomy. So so for me growing up, uh, preprints were the norm. right? In astronomy, preprints were how the communication of research happened. And the journal publication happened quite a bit later. So I, that for me was very normal. The norm was you preprinted your work as soon as it was done. Everyone in your field read the preprint that week and discussed it and gave you feedback. And then, you know, once you collect the feedback and figured out what we were doing and reassessed, at some point later you would submit it to a journal, but it wasn't that big a deal. That wasn't what made yeah. your career at all, right? So that that was a norm that I knew from my family. Um, so for me, that was quite natural. When I became an editor, one of the first things I talked about when I started was, why aren't we doing more of these preprints? Like, why doesn't biology taken this on yet? why aren't we more open in the communication? And so I was very excited when that movement happened, very excited when biology started to take on preprints more and more. And uh, Nature itself uh, was one of the first publishers to adopt that uh, by launching its own preprint server. It was called Nature Proceedings.
1: Mm-hmm. It was
4: a full preprint server at Nature uh, that lasted for a few years, and uh, we were able to work quite closely. As editor, editor was able to work quite closely with some of them in... Uh, looking at how we could best use the preprint service for authors and use it to develop manuscripts that were under review so that authors might submit their preprint, post their preprint there, uh, while also submitting to nature journal and going through the review process and using the comments they received on the preprint to help develop the review process. So we looked at models for how we could integrate this better with the review process that were interesting. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't the, quite the right time for that as a company, and it didn't. Uh, it closed after a few years, but I think we learned a lot from it. Uh, and since then, other Bioarchive has launched and has done an amazing job for biology and has grown more and more. Uh, and it's been become an incredible resource that is widely used, and uh, which we all use. I use daily as well. Uh, and as a publisher, and I think most of the big publishers have now supported BioArchive, and in Nature, uh, we've always allowed preprint servers and said very clearly that this will not negatively affect any editorial decision for consideration of a research manuscript. Uh, But now we actively encourage it. We work with BioArchive, too, to to make the submissions easier. Uh, And I think it's really important to encourage preprints for authors, uh, because this is really part of getting your work out there. And I think the the way you, people communicate their own research has shifted from a time where where you presented this at a meeting and there's lots of travel, yes. and that's where you got your main feedback. Uh, more and more now, that's not happening. You know, if, even if you do go to conferences, there are only so many conferences you can go to. So the main communication that that I, we see today is through preprints. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great way. So this is why I encourage this uh particularly for younger authors too, uh, is to post a preprint and take some time to collect your comments on this and really ask people for comments on the preprint before you submit your manuscript. And I think that's invaluable to both get
1: the work out there as early as possible and to get feedback and learn from that. Another strong consideration when publishing is what we call the impact factor of a journal. Journals such as Nature are known to be high impact, but what does that really mean? It's really important to talk about the impact factor. Uh, so the impact factor, defined
4: uh, by ISI, is a measure of the level of citations of a journal. Through a, a somewhat complicated algorithm, it is, it is the most common metric that's used to measure the citations of both a single public, single manuscript publication and a journal publication overall. And there hasn't been too many metrics that's become as widespread as that, which is why it's still the most widely used metric. I'd like to talk about this because uh, from what I see, it is authors, and often authors from certain institutions or certain locations that really are driven, um, have a lot of pressure to publish in journals with a certain impact factor. And so there is a lot of focus on that from the author's perspective to try to achieve that. From a journal perspective, though, it's quite different, which is what I think people should really recognize. From a journal perspective, we don't actually talk about that kind of impact factor. Mm -hmm. We see that as one metric that is quite, quite commonly used and that's very easy, you know, provided for us. It's useful because it is provided every year and it's kept track of and it's easy to compare. So it is definitely one metric that is useful to look at. But we know It is uh, just one of many metrics there. And there are many other metrics that are as or even much more useful for us to look
3: at.
0: In summary, a journal with a high impact factor means it has articles that are cited often. It can only be calculated after completing at least three years of publication. Therefore, relatively new journals do not have an impact factor. As Dr. Bacall mentions, the impact
1: factor is one of many research metrics. Other metrics include the site score, the H-index, the G-index, the eigenfactor score, and the altmetric score, just to name a few. The H-index, for example, focuses on the impact of only one scholar instead of the entire journal. Another example is the Altmetric score, which centers on the attention an article has received, including public policy documents, online sources, the news, or social networks. The Illinois Library points out that this attention doesn't necessarily
0: mean the article is important or of high quality. Overall, many scholarly metrics should be taken into account when considering a journal's impact, and with that, a research article's prestige and influence in society. In order to promote and advocate for funding, it's important to reach out and engage with
1: the public. Stefania asked Dr. Bernstein how we can move forward and overcome the disconnect and update the public and what the researchers are up to.
5: You mentioned it a little bit, that since we're using taxpayers' money, it's important that there's a communication to them of what is going on in science. However, we have a whole big issue of science illiteracy and pseudoscience, people not believing in global warming, anti-vaxxers, all these things that are coming up. How do you think we should tackle this? Because it is true that we have all these media and compared to the past 50 years ago, it is communicated a lot faster, and a lot easier, but it seems that we have a lot less trust in what official science will say, and people just go on Google and figure it out on their own. So how do you think we can move backwards and regain that trust?
3: That's a, a really important question and uh, a complicated one. So I think with, you know, with the web and Google and all that stuff, there is sort of a, an infectious disease of people. Someone will see some crazy idea and then it's picked up by a lot of other people. It seems like a lot of other people, but on a percentage basis, take anti-vaxxers, for example, which is an area I'm familiar with, um, most people vaccinate their children. Yeah. Um, there are some people for religious reasons or for reasons that are not, to me, nonsensical that don't. But most people still do. Does that mean we don't have to you know, engage with the public? Absolutely not. So I think it's really important for everybody in the scientific community, especially especially young scientists, to engage with the public. And I think a couple of things on that. One, I've heard people say, yeah, we need to educate the public. No, 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 no. They're not an empty vessel waiting for their brain to be filled up with all this great knowledge that we have. That's the surest way to turn them off. We need to engage with the public. That's number one. Number two, there's lots of ways we can engage. So, for example, when I was much younger, uh, the Canadian Cancer Society, I was getting money from them through the National Cancer Institute of Canada, would ask me to go to Sudbury, I remember once going to Sudbury, to give a talk about cancer research. I always said yes when I was asked. I felt it was my obligation to I was getting money from them, from donor volunteers who were going door to door, knocking on doors. So I would, would do it. It's amazing what you learn as a scientist. What we would take for granted about what people know, and what they don't know and what they care about is completely different than what I would have predicted. Third, for people who receive money from, let's uh, say, you know, CIHR, that's taxpayers, that's parliament, that money comes as a vote from parliament. So when you get money from somebody, you should say thank you. So my message always, is, especially to graduate students, and to postdocs, young trainees, and to young investigators, is if you are supported by CIHR, you should write a letter of thank you to the Minister of Health. The letter can have three paragraphs. It's very easy. Paragraph one, dear Minister of Health, my name is Joe Blow. I am receiving funding from CIHR for a project called, you know, blah, blah, blah. Thank you very much. The reason I think this grant is important to Canadians is for the following reasons. If you happen to be in, you know, if your lab's in Toronto, in Toronto or in Timbuktu, wherever you are, I'd be happy to show you around my lab and talk to you more about my work. Yours sincerely. It yep. doesn't cost a penny because you can send a hard copy letter to Ottawa without a postage stamp. Okay, just address it. You don't need the, the, the address. Minister of Health, Governor of Canada, blah, blah, blah. Ditto your own Member of Parliament. Ditto the Prime Minister. Ditto the Minister of Industry, Science, and Economic Development. And ditto the Minister of Science. So you can send the same letter. Okay? And the cool thing is, especially for young people, you're it's a civics lesson. You're kind of learning about how government works. So you'll get a letter back. And, you know, all the members of Parliament are in... They're home riding this summer, especially because there's an election coming. So you can easily book appointment to see your member of parliament. So I think the education of the public starts with the public and starts with the people who represent the public, which are members of parliament and the cabinet and the prime minister. So I think we all have an obligation, all of us have an obligation to, to start engaging with them by starting by thanking them,
0: Dr. Naylor also emphasized the importance of engaging the public in building a culture that celebrates science.
2: I think there is a challenge in that this is a young country. We have had a tradition of excellent science in many ways. We have to figure out how to celebrate that without that becoming a way for governments to assume they've spent enough money because that's part of the game that's played. Oh, we'll celebrate Canadian science and now we don't need to spend any more for the next year. Uh, We've had a Nobel Prize, or we've had a Wolf Prize or something else, and goody-goody, now we don't need to spend any more money yet. That worries me. So it needs to be a broader thing about celebrating science, valuing it, and embracing it and seeing the need for further support so the public presses the government rather than the government trying to impress on the public that they're spending enough by celebrating. Politics is a very tough business. It's a contact sport. These folks have to reapply for their jobs every few years. They make decisions that are based not just on evidence, but on values or preferences and context or circumstances. And a lot of this is highly positional, interest-based rather than being about finding common ground. It's orchestrated warfare in the trenches in an election and in legislature. So more and more academics are getting the fact that they have to do science communication, they have to do outreach, they have to try to inspire the very young generation and their teachers to carry the torch for science and scholarship. And I, I think that's a very positive change that I've seen over the course of a pretty long career. It's quite different now than when I started out and on the on the same point, although the term knowledge translation has a lot of baggage in my view, but knowledge sharing, knowledge co-creation, knowledge collaboration, whatever we want to call it, that is also way more active now than it was a few years ago. And it's not all about innovation in the marketplace. It's also about working with civil society organizations and Working to build community, to build nonprofits. So there, there's the so-called B Corps as a hybrid in between commercial and nonprofit. So there's a there's a much more varied array of entities with whom academics are working in 2019 than say 30, 40 years ago. I think that's all to the good. I think it's getting the message out. It's building relationships. It's building a culture of creativity and critical thinking and innovation, in all facets of society. I, I do think that the nonprofits are a big part of this equation on multiple levels. One is because many of the nonprofits support research, a large number of them in the, the medical and health world, but also because some of the foundations that have been set up are supportive more broadly of science and scholarship. And I, and I think they're allies to be enlisted. It was very telling. In the run-up to the 2018 budget, when the heads of several major Canadian family foundations came forward and wrote an open letter urging implementation of the FSR report, that was a, a very powerful statement. So I think we have to activate those allies in the philanthropic community, in the nonprofit foundations of various types, and see them as friends of research to the greatest extent possible. I want to put an asterisk up and say you know, sometimes these entities try to nudge the direction of research more than seems helpful. Uh, sometimes they insist on matching in ways that I'm not sure is always constructive. Uh, so you know I'm, I'm not going to say that they're the answer to you know, research funding shortfalls. We must have open, untrammeled research funding without strings for the best questions and the best ideas to be supported, to be pursued with complete independence by great scientists and scholars at all stages of their careers.
0: The cycle of research, from funding to review to publication to engaging and sharing findings with the public, are all necessary components of scientific discovery and progress. This cycle starts with the availability and prioritization of funding and resources for science. A critical component that Canada needs to improve on is promoting a strong national science culture and advocating for the importance of scientific funding. Be sure to
1: check out our next episode where we explore science policy and evidence-informed decision-making in government. We also dive deeper into what you can do as a scientist or science ally to make your voice heard in our upcoming election and beyond. This episode was hosted by myself, Zainab Koframanol, and Maria Zivcheska. Stefania Asimopoulos, Grace Jacobs, and Frank Telfer assisted with content creation. Alex Jacob was our
0: audio engineer. A very special thank you to our guests Drs. Alan Bernstein Orly Bacall and David Naylor for speaking to us and sharing their insights and thank you for listening Until, Until next time, keep it raw
1: Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.